We all know somebody that thinks they're better, better than everyone else. Maybe that person is uh, someone you work with. That it seems like everything you do at work, there's always something that, that they find wrong with it. There's always some way that they say, you could do this better. If you had done it like I had told you to do it, there wouldn't have been these problems. If you had just done it my way. Maybe for some of you, it's people in your own family. Maybe, sadly, it's one of your own parents, who it seems as though you can never do right in their eyes. It seems as though you can never live up to their standards. Their own righteousness that they judge you with leaves you wanting. And inside, it leaves you hollow. Christ had an encounter in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, with the Pharisees. And so that is our text this morning. He had an encounter with them that was very similar, where they accused him of not living up to their righteousness. So if you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 12? We'll begin reading in verse 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests? Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Self-righteousness is something that we all live with, whether it's the self-righteousness of another person that uh, far from giving us the warm and fuzzies inside when we get around them, it wants us to flee from their presence. Or maybe it's the self-righteousness that is inside of us and we don't recognize it. Self-righteousness is all around us. 
You know, one of the areas that, that we see that right now, particularly as we enter into kind of the heat of the political season with the election coming up next year and, and our desires and all of those hopes surrounding it. And, and you click on the TV and maybe you happen across one of those news channels, the ones where they have lots of commentators that are talking about what's going on in the political cycle for 24 hours a day. And it doesn't matter which one of the news channels it is you click on, you click on it seems as though they're all biased. They all think that they are right. And not only that, but during the political times, it's as though they run headlong to the extremes of whatever their positions are, and they start setting boundaries, saying, if you don't come this far, you're really not part of our political party. Or, or, or if you don't go this far, we don't think that we can give you our support because you're not pure enough. You're, you're not right enough. And they start setting False boundaries. Ignoring the complexities of the situations. Ignoring the fact that there's actually people involved in this. That, that, that our nation and the politics is about people. And yet they want to set their standard for what the right is. For what the good is. For how far you need to go. Maybe it's not politics. You know, Maybe it's material possessions. You know, some of some of our society does not necessarily experience this, but we, we see it on TV and we kind of know it in our hearts. You know, you think, of, you think of shows like Downton Abbey where you have an upper class and a, and a lower class and never the two shall meet. Why? Because you're not of good enough birth. You're not as good as me because just because I came from a particular line, all of a sudden, I'm better than you. Or maybe in our society where we are judged by the clothes we wear and by the places we eat and do we know how to pronounce a particular thing on a menu and, and you sit in a restaurant and somebody mispronounces it and maybe in your heart you go, that's not how you say that. Don't you know any better? Maybe it's in your philosophy. Maybe in how you think you've set up a self-righteousness that you didn't even realize. Maybe you pride yourself on open-mindedness. And, and you, you accept all things and you think this is great. We need to appreciate everything. And then when you run into someone who says, no, I believe this is right. Instead of your glorious open-mindedness, you reveal your own self-righteousness because you say you're a bigot. Because you don't accept everything. What have you done? Your open-mindedness has become your own self-righteousness. Your own law that you've set up. Self-righteousness can be an elaborate facade that we build up brick by brick, layer upon layer. But what is its heart is protecting ourselves. It's an unwillingness to recognize our own brokenness. It's an unwillingness to say, 
I'm just like you. I have warts, and I have problems, and I'm no better than anyone else. But when we do that, we open ourselves up to pain. And so what we want to do is we want to build a wall, and we want to set up a standard to say, no one can get through my defenses because no one can measure up to what I say is right. In this passage, Christ encounters the Pharisees, and and certainly throughout the Gospels, we have gotten to know the Pharisees and, and gotten to understand the hostility that they hold towards Christ. And here, they come to Christ on the Sabbath. And they approach Him with self-righteous hearts to condemn Him and to condemn His disciples. And we will see as we go through this passage Christ's response to them. And we'll see three different things. One, we will look at the self-righteous repudiation of the Pharisees in rejecting Christ and accusing Him. Two, we'll see a radical reorientation that Christ desires to reveal to them. And third, we will see a radical restoration that is meant for us. In the first century, the Pharisees had lots of laws around the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath was one of those things that from ancient times in Israel's history set them apart as the people of God. Even today, even in Jewish communities today, it's a significant distinction for them. At my job where I work, we have a particular piece of software that was developed and created by a group in Israel. And I'll tell you, it gets difficult because when it comes Thursday... If they've come into town or if you've been going through a project, all of a the sudden they're rushing to get things done. And when it comes to Friday, you can't find them because Friday night is the start of Sabbath. And they're preparing themselves and they're getting ready. And if you want them to work over the weekend on Saturday when you have to work, it's not going to happen. And there's a clear and distinct separation within the workforce of that. And that's the same kind of separation that Israel was displaying in ancient times. And what the Pharisees had done is, in an attempt to maintain that distinction as the people of God, they had built up more and more laws of their own devising on top of the law of God. So some of them were in line, it would appear, with what Scripture required. Scripture in the Old Testament said, essentially, that for the Sabbath, you were not to do the work that you did through the week normally. So if you were a fisherman, you didn't go fishing. If you were a farmer, you did not go farm your fields. If you were a shepherd, pin your sheep in, and then you're to rest from your work. But what the Pharisees heard and what they devised was greater than that, for they said, hmm, well, if you're not supposed to plow on the Sabbath, then you dare not spit on the ground, because if your spittle makes a dent in the ground, then you have plowed the ground. And so you can't do that. And Lord forbid there should be a seed where you have just spit, because if your spit lands on the seed, then you have also sown, and you have broken the law. And certainly do not reap 
And that's exactly what we see here. For the disciples having been, have been with Jesus walking through the fields, and what do they do? They reach out and they take some of the grain off of the harvest that's in the field that they're walking next to. Now, in the Old Testament, this was perfectly fine. In fact, there are examples in the Old Testament of how when you were a farmer, certain areas of your field were to be left uh, for those who were needy to come along. So if you're reaping, you, you leave the corners of your field so others could come who are in need of it and take it. If you were traveling and going through an area, Scripture allowed you to do just what the disciples did. To take some of the harvest or take some of the grain and to eat it. And yet here, the Pharisees, because of their own rules and their own laws that they had devised, are saying they're reaping. There's something wrong here, Jesus. And so they go and they accuse Him. They accuse His disciples. Now we have to understand, when, when the Pharisees accuse His disciples, in that day and age, a rabbi had those who followed Him and an accusation of improper behavior against the disciples was also an accusation against the teacher. For it said, what are you letting your disciples do? You, what are you teaching them? The assumption was is that they were going to act in accord with what the rabbi, what their teacher, was professing. And so really what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus, what kind of person are you? What kind of teacher are you that you would let your disciples do this? This is unlawful. In the second episode, they, they go a step further. Because they don't just accuse the disciples of taking grain from the field, but Jesus enters into the synagogue and there they... They don't just accuse Jesus, but now they've twisted the law. It says that they asked Jesus about the healing on the Sabbath so that they might find something to accuse Him of. So here, the law has become their weapon. One of the laws that they had in that day was that there were six days for healing, and on the seventh, you didn't. So if you needed medical care, best go during the other six days and not on Sunday. That was the Sabbath. And so here they are bringing up that same instance, that same law that they have constructed. But Jesus is about to do something dramatic. It seems a little cryptic to us. There is... There is a lot of background to what Jesus says. He quotes Scripture three times or alludes to it twice and quotes it a third time. But what Jesus is doing now is He is going to explode the box that the Pharisees have drawn around the law. He is going to reveal to them that their understanding of the law is in violation of the law itself, in violation of Scripture. That those things that they are judging others by are themselves a false measure of men. 
And so the Pharisees accuse him, him, and he says this, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to eat. So a little bit of background. In, In the Old Testament, you had the tabernacle and the temple system. The temple was built in... Uh, part of it was to place out what's called showbread or consecrated bread. There were 12 loaves of bread that were baked. As the people of Israel brought their grain offering to the temple, the priests were responsible for taking a portion of that and baking the bread, one loaf for each of the tribes, and placing it out on the table before the Lord. It was a sign, it was a symbol of the sacrifice of the children of Israel to the Lord. And every Sabbath, that bread was changed. And when it was changed, it had to be eaten. But there was only a certain type of person who could eat it. One who was a priest. Made explicit in the Old Testament that it was the priests who were to eat it. And yet here, Jesus says, well, didn't you hear what happened With David and his men, you see, you remember David that he was anointed king, but he was not made king immediately. Saul remained on the throne, and and David was brought into his courts, and Saul was happy for a time because David was a pretty darn good musician. You know, he played some catchy tunes, and he liked to tap his toes and sing to them. But after a while, he realized that the people liked David more than him. He, He realized that David was destined for the throne and not his son Jonathan. And so Saul started a manhunt and David fled. And when David fled, he went to a town called Nob where the tabernacle was at that time, or at least a house of God. And there was a priest there, Ahimelech. And David's on the run with his men and and obviously he didn't have time to go and stock up a lot of provisions. You know, he had been told, Saul's after you and he hit the ground running. Took his few trusted men and he was off. And he comes to the house of God and he knows the priests are there and he anticipates that they will help him. And he says, my men and I have nothing. Give us some bread to eat. And Himelech says, well, you know, I really don't have anything here. The only thing I have is the consecrated bread. And David says, give it to us. Now, I can imagine in the priest's mind, in Himelech's mind, he is now starting to roll over in his mind what he should do. Because there's a conflict, right? There's a conflict between the law of God, and yet also, here is the anointed of God. The one whom God had called to be the covenant representative of all of Israel. The one whom God had established a covenant with. That He would establish His throne forever. And here He is in need, and yet it seems as though there is a contradiction in what He can do and what He can give. But what Jesus is doing in using this story is saying that Ahimelech understood that there are values within the kingdom of God. That there are general patterns that He establishes for us, but there are times when there are exceptions to those values. You know, as we celebrate the Sabbath, this day, the Lord's Day, it's good for us to rest. But you know, Memorial for many years has participated in providing food and meals for Grace and Peace Women's Shelter. 
And you know what day we do it on? Sunday. We are in need of rest on the Sabbath. But at the same time, we must recognize the needs of our fellow man. Is it better for us to maintain a lack or a lack of work and to rest on the Sabbath and let others who are in need, in desperate need, go without provision? Do we ignore the opportunities of mercy that the Lord brings in front of us of those who are in need? And Jesus is saying no. But he's also saying more than that. Right? Because David was the anointed of the Lord. He, he was to be the next king. And for that reason, Ahimelech took the consecrated bread and gave it to him so that the anointed of the Lord might have his needs met. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is comparing himself and his disciples to David. But it only makes sense if Jesus himself is at least as great as David. And what do you think the Pharisees thought of that? You see, in their frame of reference, there was no way that was happening. There was no way that they could conceive that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of David, the one to come. And Jesus is blowing out one of the sides of their boxes and saying, you don't understand You accuse, but you do not understand. What you think is not big enough, it doesn't have the capacity to answer this situation in Scripture. The need of of others. You accuse, but you neglect the needs of others. And then he also says that, haven't you read that the law, in the law, how that the priests in the temple desecrate the temple every day, and yet are innocent. If on the Sabbath you're not supposed to work, if you're not supposed to do hard labor, then the priests were in serious violation of this. Day after day, the people of Israel brought their sacrifices to the temple. So they brought brought sheep, and they brought goats, and they brought rams, and they brought birds. Have you ever tried to butcher a cow? Have you, have you ever tried to, to tip one over? I mean, it's, it's... Okay, so on the Science Channel, they said it's actually not possible to tip one over. But even if it was, it is hard work to try to tip a huge cow over. And here on the Sabbath, the priests have to sacrifice. And so they're lifting, and they are hoisting, and they are cutting, and it is messy, and it is dirty, and it stinks... And it is not fun. And they do it all on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, for here you would accuse them of breaking the Sabbath for plucking grain, rubbing them in their hands. And yet the priests, the priests work harder than anyone on the Sabbath. And think about that. If if they were utterly consistent, if the Pharisees were utterly consistent with their own rules and regulations, right, there would be no worship on the Sabbath. I think about it here in our own church, right? Now, we've been hugely blessed with a fantastic staff. And so I know they don't like for us to talk about them 
and how thankful we are from the pulpit because maybe it embarrasses them. But, but our staff puts in a tremendous amount of work during the week. And, and you wouldn't believe the amount of work that they put in on Sunday as well. For what purpose? To lead us in worship of the Lord. And Christ is here saying that, that there are values in the kingdom and to worship the Lord is more important. It is the exception that here we are called to give ourselves in wholehearted worship to God. But He goes further. He says there is something even greater than the temple here. For he says, Pharisees, you don't understand. All of the temple ceremony, all of the cultic law and regulation, it points to something greater. And the implication is, is that he is claiming himself to be that greater thing. He says, you, you hold to the law, but you are missing something. That which the law is pointing to. And is pointing to me. And then he quotes from Scripture. He said, as if blowing out the other sides of their boxes were not, not enough, he then levels his guns at them. And there are certain things that you don't want to do in life. Number one, when you're a child, you don't want to backtalk your parents because you're liable to get a spanking. Number two, you certainly don't want to pull on Superman's cape because he's much bigger and he's much better than you. And number three, you don't want to be on the receiving end of Jesus' guns. For he says this, he said, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. So what is he saying? He's quoting from Hosea. So Jenny read the passage for us. And if you noticed in Hosea, there was a problem in the northern kingdom of Israel. The people of God were following all of the regulations and all of the sacrifices, but there was a problem that God had identified. And He sent Hosea to address it. He said, you have the form of godliness, but you do not know Me. You know My law, but you don't know the thing that the law points to, which is Me. He said, the reason that you have sacrificed, Israel, is to paint a picture of what I am doing for you. It's to inform you of my character. It's to say, I have had mercy on you. When you should be the one that is being sacrificed, I have made a substitute. I have shown you mercy. And he is saying, instead even of the sacrifices, what I want from you is a knowledge of me. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. You see, self-righteousness creates a boundary, a barrier, to keep us from intimacy with others. But what Christ is saying is that my law was not created to keep you from me. It was created to draw you to me. I, I'm less concerned about the keeping of it than I am with you knowing me. And then he says something that I find to be horrendously condemning. 
For he says this, if you had known this, you would not have condemned the innocent. What Christ is saying is is that my disciples are innocent because of me. And yet, in Proverbs 17.15, we read these words, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Surely those words rang in the ears of the Pharisees. And yet they didn't see. Here Christ is breaking down, blowing open their box, saying you don't understand what the law is about. You've built your own righteousness and you don't understand that you aren't righteous. And to top it all off, He says this, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does it mean for Him to be Lord of the Sabbath? Well, it means a couple of things. To be Lord of something is to be the Creator and Sustainer of it. To be Lord of something means that that thing under you serves your purposes and your ends. In Genesis, the story of creation, God worked six days and then He rested on the seventh. It was God who created the Sabbath. It is God who is Lord of the Sabbath. What is Christ saying? He's saying, I am He. He's saying, Pharisees, your own self-righteousness has made you so blind that you have failed to see that the hope of Israel is here. That the promise of God incarnate is here. And I'm standing before you. And He establishes Himself as the basis for the Sabbath. He is creating and He is doing that radical reorientation. Aristotle in his Poetics talks about a concept called peripeteia. Peripety. And and the concept is, is that in any good story... What makes a really, really good story is you get to a point in the story and something occurs, a piece of information comes out, or something happens, and it turns all the actions 180 degrees. Or all of a sudden you realize something and and it takes on a completely different meaning. How many of you have seen The Sixth Sense? Alright. So so you know in that movie that there is a uh, counselor, Malcolm Crowe, and In the beginning of the movie, you get the story that he had helped a a young child who was seeing dead people, and and he tried to help him, and and he couldn't. And he failed this young boy, and the boy grows up and gets older, and one night, Crow comes back to his house with his wife, and there in the bathroom waiting is this boy that he had been counseling. And he shoots Crow just before he commits suicide. And then it's a fast-forward flash to a year later. And Crow's found another boy who's having the same problems. Cole is his name. And Cole, we all know the famous saying, right? I see dead people. And so he goes to to Crow for counseling, for help. His mother brings him to him and and says, my son is just having all these problems. And, And so Crow's determined to help him. And so the whole movie is him helping to deal with this and, and to go through this and figuring out how all of this works. And, 
And during this, you see that Crow has grown distant from his wife, and, and they barely talk, and they barely spend time together. And, and the boy picks up on it, and, and Cole, Cole says, you know, you really should try talking to your wife, and, and you should really try talking to her when she's asleep. And so, the movie moves on, and Crow finally helps the boy to come to terms with this, with his scene of ghosts, and, and to accept it, and to use it to help other people, and and in the last scene, Crow goes home and his wife is curled up in a chair asleep and their wedding video is playing. And he sits down on the cushion and starts talking to his wife and his wife says, why did you leave me in their sleep? And he said, why did I leave you? I didn't, I didn't leave you. And then all of a sudden, his wife's hand opens and to the floor drops his wedding ring. And all of a sudden, he knows, and we know, that the reason Cole can talk to him is because he's dead. He had died in the bathroom. And, and then when you look at the movie, it's all different. You see things you had never seen before. It jumps out at you because you finally have this piece of information. And this is what Christ is doing. He's saying you have misunderstood the purpose of the law, and when you see me, it all changes. Everything's different. You realize that the law is not there to keep you from me, but to draw you to me. You realize that the law is not there as a rule so that you can earn your righteousness, so you can earn your way into heaven, but it's to point to the fact that you cannot do that and that I have done it for you. And then he gives them a beautiful example. For he moves from there into the synagogue. And there is a man with a withered hand. We don't know hardly anything at all about this man other than one hand was sound and the other was withered. And here, the Pharisees in their self-righteousness seek to accuse Christ. And they seek to catch him in a lie so that they might prove him wrong and themselves righteous. And they say, is it right to heal him? And what Christ has just said is, if you see the Sabbath in relation to me, that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, then you will understand this lesson. If you had a sheep and it fell into a pit, would you go pick it out? And he doesn't even wait for an answer. The assumption is, of course I would. Sheep are not the smartest animals that have ever lived on the planet. And it is likely that sheep would die. And so, yes, I'm going to pull it out to save the sheep's life. And he says, how much more valuable is a man? For when we see Christ as the center, then we see the image of Christ in humanity and mercy has gained its place in our lives. Our reflection today speaks of that. If you have your bulletin, the reflection says this, self-righteousness robs us of rest, for it must always work to cover its own shortcomings by decrying the failings of others. But mercy receives us in our brokenness and leads us into the restoration of Christ.
Mercy has its place. When self-righteousness consumes you because you are trying to earn your own salvation, you are trying to make yourself right and beautiful and pretty, there is no room for mercy for others because you must use them to prove yourself to be right. But when you recognize the truth of Christ, when you see your own brokenness, there is room for mercy. Think of the man with the withered hand. He asked for nothing. He expected nothing. But one thing was clear to him, I am quite sure. He knew that he was crippled. He knew that he was broken. And no doubt he had heard of the miracles that Christ had performed. And Christ is saying, you are valuable. And he says, The heart of the law, the heart of the Sabbath, is to do good. It is never wrong to do good for others. Not to use others to make ourselves look good, but to join them and understand that just like the man with the withered hand, we too are crippled and broken in our hearts, in our souls. And we need the restoration of Christ. And that is what he is pointing at. He is pointing at a radical restoration. Now, I want to take just a minute because we might through this think that work is bad. But work is not. Work is good. God created work in Genesis. He gave Adam and Eve work to do before they ever fell into sin. And He also gave them the Sabbath, the seventh day to rest before sin ever came into the world. So work is not a product of sin, but rather work is a gift of God. But God also created rest. Because we as humans in our nature need to rest. It's not just a product of the fall, but we need the rest. We need to stop, to slow down. In our hectic workaday world, it is so hard. I know you feel it. The hundreds of emails that come through that you have to answer, that you never seem to get done, and then on top of that, all the ones that you shouldn't even get, and yet somehow your name found its way into the two-line, right? And you come home, and there's places to go, and you need to take your children to this activity, and run, and run, and run, and do this, and do that, and go faster. And look, technology is so great because it allows us to do so much, and, and look at all the leisure we have because of it, right? No. Not quite. It's made more time, so we fill it with other things. And we run and run until our feet are bruised and we fall to our knees and we realize we must rest. And Christ gives us that rest. Not just rest of the the body, but rest of the soul. Ray Cortez in his sermon on this passage uses a beautiful illustration. You know, he says the Sabbath is rim sleep for our soul. It's not a time when we run and do other things and go to sports events and do things all the time, but it's a time when we come here with the brethren because our soul needs to sleep. We give ourselves to God for refreshment, but not just refreshment, restoration, to take our brokenness and to heal us. And here, 
the Pharisees and their own self-righteousness were using it as a weapon instead of a tool for restoration. Friends, our self-righteousness can get in the way even when we don't realize it because we refuse to humble ourselves and acknowledge our brokenness before God. And that's the acknowledgement that He wants because then He can come to us and He can say, yes, you are broken. But isn't it beautiful? I sacrifice myself to heal you. To bring the rest that you really need. To bring the restoration to the brokenness of your life. To express my love to you. As a parent, we set rules for our children. My son turned 15 years old just recently, and so we are smack in the middle of dealing with the driving issue. (laughs) We have a year to figure something out. I'm not sure what we'll do. But I know this, when, when he gets his license, just like my dad with me, I'll be able to take the car sometimes and go out and do things, but, but I'll have a discussion with him, and I'll say, Nick, you're going to go out, you're going to have fun with your friends, but, but I need you home by a certain time. And so we talk about it, and maybe we negotiate, is it going to be 2 or is it going to be 12? And we wind up at 10, which is a much better figure. But Nick can look at that curfew in two different ways. Any of us can, and I know I did whenever I was his age. You can look at it as a restriction and a restraint. A negative. Something to be checked off and followed so that you can earn your righteousness to your father, before your father. Or you can look at it for what it's meant to be. Loving and caring. Bringing you home at a decent time so that you don't get tired and wreck the car on your way home. So that you're not out when other people who may have drunk too much are are starting to leave the bars. So that when you come home, there's enough time for you to get rest so that you can get up in the morning and you can participate with the family. We can express our love to you. We can be together in community. This is what our Father wants for us. This is the purpose of the Sabbath. Not a law-keeping, but restoration. Let us pray. Father, we are so busy in our lives. And it is so hard for us to stop. And Lord, in our society, we so rarely do stop and listen to You. But as with the prophet of old, You are not in the earthquake, You are not in the whirlwind, but You are in the still small voice. And we must quiet ourselves so that we might come and be with You and experience Your rest and Your renewal for You long to give it to us through the power of Your Spirit and on account of the crucified Son who is risen and is coming again. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.